Welcome to Off the Record with James Bell, a legal podcast where we listen to stories that go beyond the courtroom. This podcast is a production of the Indianapolis Bar Association. Now here's your host, James Bell. Greetings, Earthlings. Happy holidays and welcome to the final 2019 episode of Off the Record. Hey, do you know what happened in 1948? Well, let me tell you. According to the internet, in 1948, Truman was our president, communists seized power in Czechoslovakia, and Gandhi was assassinated. The average new house cost $7,700, and the average salary was under $3,000 a year. And most importantly, in 1948, the game of Scrabble was introduced. Actually, a little more importantly, in 1948, Skip Kappas became a lawyer. Philip Skip Kappas has been practicing for over 70 years. He was the founding partner of the firm Lewis and Kappas, and he is a business lawyer. He attended Michigan Law School at the age of 19, and he was the Indy Bar president in 1970. Even though his children are retired, he is not. He is still active in the Indy Bar and is still practicing law. One of the great things about being Indy Bar president in 2018 was that I got to meet the former president, and I got to know Skip a little. He came to my office for this interview about nine months ago, and the staff at my office fell in love with him. He's a gentleman and a great person to be around. This may have been the first interview I did for the Off the Record podcast. You will see that Skip is patient with me. I tried to talk college football with Skip, but when he mentioned Bob Chappius, University of Michigan quarterback from 1946, well, I didn't have much to say. That said, I think you will find it interesting to hear what the practice of law was like before I was born, what the courts were like, how bad the pollution was in the city of Indianapolis, how everything, and I mean everything, was tried to a court. Anyway, it was different, and as you will see, some things are not necessarily better now. So with that said, I think we're ready to go off the record. So what is that? Do you have uh, 50 years of experience or do you have one year experience 50 times? Actually, 70. <laughs> 70. All right. Well, I am sitting here talking with Phil Skip Kappas. Welcome, Mr. Kappas, to Off the Record. Thank you. And uh, about a month ago at the Indy Bar installation for officers, that we had a lot of past presidents there. And uh, I thought it was very special that we had our president from 1970 there to pass the gavel to Tom Barnard. This was during the period of time I was trying to think of who we wanted to interview for the podcast, and I thought you would be someone we could talk to. So I appreciate your being here. Well, you're, you're very kind. I, I figured this was cheaper than buying you lunch. Just uh, so. <laughs> There you go. Well, uh, I'm going to start off by just saying uh, you are 93 years old. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And you do you still come to work? A few times a week? Uh, every once in a while. Most of what I do anymore, my ticket is still good, but uh, most of what I do anymore, I, I do at home and just transmit it electronically down to the office. Okay. But uh, we'll get out and around here, here and there. Uh, most of what I do presently is pro bono, uh, helping a, a CDC on the south side down around Fountain Square and uh, some odds and ends of old clients that uh, still call me up, but first a few people come seeking 
93-year-old lawyers. So yeah. <laughs> things are rather quiet, but pleasant. Well, that's good. And you wore a suit today. Do you, do you wear a suit every day? Um, not not every day, but uh, at least a jacket and, and uh, open-collared shirt. Sure. I, uh, I want you to know that I wore a suit today in your honor. I knew you would wear a suit, well, and I didn't. I want to make sure that I. Well, you're very, you're kind, and I appreciate that. Jim Voiles is always complaining that lawyers don't wear suits. They need to look like a lawyer. Do you agree with that? I agree with it a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously, you're the Capus from Lewis and Capus. Does every are they business casual there? Or do they wear suits every day? Both. Both. So if they're going to appear in court, they uh, usually polish up a little bit, but uh, uh, for the most part, they're. Uh, Casual, I would say. Okay. Why is it important to look like a lawyer? Well, number one, uh, I think it uh, it keeps you disciplined, and of course, the law is a has a significant disciplinary quality to it. Uh, you have to be sharp and stay sharp, and one of those processes is dressing uh, like a lawyer. Uh, secondly, I think. Lawyers need to appear before the public in that fashion. Even when you're just in the office. Right. Even when you're just out to lunch. Exactly. In 1948, you graduated from University of Michigan Law School. Is that correct? Yes. And and did I read somewhere that you went to law school at age 19? Yes. And when did you go to college? Well, I started uh, in Butler University in January of 1943. And that was a time... I was three and a half years through Shortridge High School, and that last semester I could transfer to Butler, assuming they accepted you. And then the credits from that first semester at Butler were sent back to Shortridge, which qualified me to graduate in the class of 1943, uh, the June class of 1943. And then I just uh, went through Butler in roughly two and a half years, I think I graduated in August of 1945 and went on to the University of Michigan. Was it common to have 19-year-olds in law school at that time? No, I was the youngest member of my class. Unfortunately, I met the first returning wave of uh, veterans from World War II, <laughs> and the average age of my class was 27. These guys had been out in the world and knew an awful lot more than us greenhorns, and not only that, but they were pretty serious about knuckling down and getting to work. <laughs> I wasn't quite used to that yet. You, you weren't? But we soon learned. How did those guys treat you when they came back as somebody who hadn't experienced what they had experienced? Oh, it was fun. I, I, I learned a great deal from them. Mm -hmm. they, uh, their, their experience, I think, enriched the legal training that we were getting. Tell me what law school was like back then. How many people would have been in your class? Oh, I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 to 200 students. How many of those people would have been women? Two. Two? One okay. of whom dropped out promptly. <laughs> the third one did, did stay on, and she... Uh, Ultimately became a federal judge. Oh, really? Okay. So you finished law school in three years, is that right? Is that yes. And before we leave this topic, who's your favorite Michigan football player? <laughs> um, I think perhaps Bob Chappius. 
And then what do you think of Jim Harbaugh? He has to go, right? <laughs> he can't be at Ohio State. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 does, that does give us some pause. No, I, I think he's a good coach. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not close enough to that program to know whether or not he's well-liked. Um, I, I think if he's teaching the kids good football, you know, I send him off. So you moved back to Indianapolis in 1948? Correct. So, and then I assume you're sworn in. I understand back then they swore you in at the Supreme Court. Is that correct? Uh-huh. So how many people would have been sworn in in 1948? Do you have a guess? 75 or 80, maybe. But everybody fit in the Supreme Court anyway? Oh, yes. Is that mostly men then? Uh, for the most part, yeah, except uh, one of the people I took the bar exam with was Franny Neal, who was the first lady prosecutor in uh, Hamilton County. She was she nearly scared the rest of us to death because of the, when we were taking the bar exam in those days, it was uh, two days and two, each day had two four-hour sessions where you had story problems that you were expected to answer, true and false and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. had not started up by that time. But Franny, I remember the very first uh, session we went to, somewhere in the neighborhood of a little over an hour, Franny got up and left. Everybody thought maybe she was sick. She did that four times <laughs> and, and wound up, at the, I think, at the top of the class. <laughs> or at the top of the bar exam results. I I always tell people I got the highest grade in my bar exam, which was pass. That's all I wanted. (laughs) Maybe a pass plus, maybe a pass. I'll just take a pass. So what sort of cases were you doing back in 1948? I'm not sure I remember. Okay. Did you remember what your salary was in 1948? Do you remember what they paid you? I have no idea. Also went to work for... Armstrong and Gauze, and I do remember that salary is the handsome sum of $40 a week. $40 a week, wow. <laughs> and I felt wealthy. <laughs> Could you and just give me an idea of what the legal landscape looked like in 1948? I mean, what was the biggest firm? How many, you know, how many federal judges do we have? Do you recall those sort of things? There was one federal judge also. There were like seven superior courts all of which were elected at general elections. And the uh, largest firm was Ice Miller, as I recall. They had 18 lawyers. 18 lawyers. That was the mega firm <laughs> right. back then. Interesting. What was the civility of the bar like in 1948? Is that something that's gotten better or worse over time? I would, I would say that the civility was significantly more comfortable, still adversarial, but uh, because of the few number of lawyers, you knew virtually everybody in the Bar Association. And so as a consequence, when you opposed uh, a fellow lawyer, you knew that person. Today, that becomes virtually impossible. It was not too bad in 1970 when I was president of the Bar, but, but I, th- I think the civility came from knowing the lawyers uh, in the Bar Association. I mean, you met them as friends, you had lunch with them, you uh, tussled with them in the courtroom or uh, negotiated vigorously with them in, in uh, different kinds of 
business settings and that sort of thing. I've always felt that the, that the diminution in uh, civility, if anything, simply has come from the fact that the lawyers don't know one another as well as they used to. And, uh, you know, if, if a guy's your friend, you, you tussle with him. But at the same time, you don't get mean or bitter or that sort of thing. I also think another thing that has contributed to the lack of civility has been the complexity of the procedural pieces of the law. I can remember when discovery first started becoming a, a part of the practice, and then it was regarded as being very beneficial because prior to that time, you had kind of the sporting theory of justice where you got your case and he got his case, and you had no idea what he was going to come up with, and he didn't know what you were going to come up with. And you met in the courtroom and, and had it out. Uh, you drew your six shooters and gave it your best shot. But uh, uh, today, with uh, with discovery, particularly in business cases, discovery has become a weapon. And if the lawyers and the courts don't get together and figure out how to balance that act between the importance and the propriety of uh, of discovery and letting it get clear out of hand to the point where the cost of discovery is a significant feature of the cost of resolving litigated matter. Uh, it seems I, I, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and generally the rule of discovery is government give, at least in state court, government give the defendant your evidence. That's discovery. Yeah. And uh, defendant generally has the Fifth Amendment and gets to shut up, right? <laughs> and I'm astounded when I'm involved in civil cases, the few times I've been involved in it, how much a client pays for you to exchange information and not for your advice, not for your talents of going into court. And it just seems overwhelmingly expensive that that's what clients pay for. I mean, is that what you're getting at? I mean, yeah. it's just... So back in the back yeah. in 1948, you would just say, "Look, let's just go to court and we'll figure it out as we go." Yeah, were the courts pretty overwhelmed then, or would you get a trial date like the next week? Or oh no, uh, the, the the trial dates. Uh, you see, the courts all closed in the summertime. Uh, there was there would be one civil court and one criminal court open during the summer months. Uh, uh, July and August uh, for emergency matters. Was it hot in those courtrooms? Only slightly, since there was no air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> you you opened the window and and the, the soot from the cold fired <coughs> furnaces blew across your desk and, or or the courtroom and smudged all your perfectly glowing papers. Yeah. You know, they always showed up with a few black smudges on them here and there. You mentioned being president of the Bar Association in 1970. What were some of the projects you were working on when you were president? One of the things that we did was uh, consider hiring a full-time manager or executive director, um, which ultimately turned out to be Rosie Felton. But prior to that time, we'd already had part-time people. That How many people were in the association then? Do you remember? I want to say in the area of 2,500, 2,800, somewhere in there. Okay. 
and now we're up to but five thousand or so. So it's doubled since then. Yeah. So you started Dutton, Capus, and Over Overman. What year was that? Fifty, fifty or fifty-one. Okay, and then maybe I'm going to say thirty years later, you started Lewis and Capus. Is that correct? In the eighties? Uh, yes, that's correct. Do you think? And I were together thirty-five years, and then that, then I withdrew from that firm, and Ted Lewis and I got together and, and formed uh, Lewis Capus Fuller Needs, and, and been there ever since. I don't know Mr. Lewis. I don't know Mr. Dutton, but I have this theory that the gentleman of the firm always has his name second. Do you think that's correct? The, the <laughs> nicest guy has his his name second. Well, I can't speak for the others. For mine, I can tell you definitely that Ben Dutton was one of the kindest, gentlest men I ever knew and a brilliant lawyer. And Ted Lewis was cut of the same cloth. All right. So my theory fails. They're good old boys. (laughs) They're good old boys. Well, you know, there are a lot. You obviously ran two successful firms, and the Indy Bar has found that a lot of the lawyers getting out of law school are forced to start their own firm these days. What advice would you give to somebody starting their own firm? I guess the most important thing that comes to my mind is how much you don't know when you graduate from law school. <clears throat> so I think it would be of vital importance to find a person in another firm who would agree to serve as your mentor or a sounding block where you could call them up and say, you know, hey, I got this problem. Uh, how, do, how do I tackle it? Um, or, you know, do you know these lawyers? What can you tell me about them? You have to that, connect that, to that somebody. I, that I think, well... A lot depends on what law law school you came from. Mm -hmm. Now, Michigan, like IU Bloomington, are purely academic institutions. Um, And so when you come out of law school, you certainly know how to practice law, but knowing the nuances of the good old boy systems in various courtrooms you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can so well remember when I started out with Armstrong and Gauze, Earl Keitlinger one day said to me, Skip, go over to uh, um, the courthouse and take a rule to show cause in this particular case. I thought to myself, what on earth is a rule to show cause? <laughs> so uh, uh, I asked one of the uh, we called them secretaries in those days. Mm-hmm. I guess they're legal assistants now. But, so I asked one of the gals in the office, you know, what on God's green earth is a rule of show cause? <laughs> then I got to the courthouse. I had no idea where the order book was in which I was supposed to write this order to show cause. And so the clerk had to show me what it was. And um, so... One one of the things that the, the new kid on the block needs to be is humble and be prepared to ask questions instead of of uh, being being arrogant. Uh, I got 
early lessons in those days because my first desk at Armstrong and Gauze was in the reception room right behind the secretaries. They had four secretaries seated in a square. I sat behind one of them and I remember one day my wife called up and she was very proud of the fact that I was a lawyer. And she said, uh, this is Mrs. Kappas, is Mr. Kappas in? And the gal answering the phone said, hey, Skip, it's Dodie. <laughs> renders you humble. <laughs> I would think if you're a 19-year-old with a bunch of 27-year-old World War II vets, you probably learned to be humble at Michigan Law as well. Very quickly. <laughs> yes. So hey, Earl Keitlinger was, a, I assume, a mentor of yours. Who else? Definitely was. Um, Harry Gauze. Earl, I think, taught me more, more than anything. Mm -hmm. Earl was very intellectual and had a great uh, ability in legal writing. And so he would take some of the stuff that I wrote and just uh, rip it apart, but taught me a great deal in the process of how you write succinctly to the point and don't wander around in a whole bunch of stuff that court's really not interested in listening to. I, I've been very fortunate over my entire life to be associated with some really fine people. Cracker Jack lawyers, but also really nice people to be around. I've, I've always felt a great affection for all the people that I've been associated with. 70 years that I've been practicing law, I've shaken hands with a lot of lawyers agreeing upon a particular matter, settling a case, or resolving a particular difficulty. And your kids, I think I talked to you at the past president's dinner, and you mentioned your kids are retiring. Is that right? Yeah, they've all retired. <laughs> they haven't. But you you don't ever want to retire. Is that right? No. Why not? I like to practice law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've enjoyed it. I have, thoroughly, yeah. At that president's dinner, you, you, you're always there, and they always let you speak last. Why do you feel compelled to go back to that president's dinner every year? I like those people. You feel a connection <laughs> to the, the Bar Association? Yeah. They're, uh, yeah, and the older I get, the further away I get from the day-to-day -day hustings. Which, uh, so this gives me an opportunity to rekindle uh, those acquaintances and those uh, relationships. At the end of this year's past president dinner, you, you stood up and said, I, I, have, I have three questions I'd like to ask. I know the second one was, what one thing would you do if you knew you could not fail? What is the one thing you would do if you could not fail? I think that what I would like to do would be to embark upon revamping the uh, delivery of legal services. I think there is a great field there when you consider the advent of technology along with the uh, virtual explosion of law and regulatory aspects of the law, somehow simplify the whole process so that resolutions of problems are more efficiently, less expensively handled, and the courts again become more relevant to problem solving. Mm -hmm. It takes too long to get a case done. Well, 
you have to qualify that because like in family law and even in criminal law, I would assume, although I've not been or ever been very active in criminal law, sometimes time and the passage of time helps the propriety of the result in the case. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in business matters, business people want the problem solved. They really don't care how smart you are or how much you have to delve into the books and records of the other guy in order to make your case. They're mainly interested in getting the problem solved. And that's why, what, the vast majority of cases uh, are, are resolved simply because the business people don't necessarily want a win or a loss. They just want the problem solved so they can move on to other things in their business. And I think the, the courts and the lawyers have to recognize that and create the system so that it addresses the importance of getting the problem solved efficiently and significantly less expensively. You mentioned getting the courts more involved. Do you think it would be helpful to solve more cases by trial? Uh, yes, I do. We'd act differently if we knew every case was going to trial, right? Well, I haven't thought about it in that light, but yeah, I guess that's pretty good. We would certainly know what a good case was and a bad case was after a few trials, I think. <laughs> that's right. So, I did write down the third thing you said uh, at the President's Theater, and you said, if you see beauty in someone, why not let them know? Do you remember saying that? Oh, yeah. So I wanted to just comment to you as we wrap up today that I see beauty in your continued commitment to our community and to our profession and how you carry yourself as a gentleman. So I'm letting you know. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much. You're very kind. So there you are now. In 1948, Indy had one federal judge, seven superior courts, the biggest law firm was Ice Miller with 18 lawyers, and the courts closed in summertime, and you couldn't open the windows of a courtroom because the soot from the factories flew in. Civility was different. Discovery was different. Trials were different. But the struggle for a work-life balance was the same. So thank you, Skip Kappas, for going off the record with us and giving us a little lesson about what has come before us. We have now completed 10 episodes of Off the Record, and this was the last one of the year. These were harder to find time for than I thought they would be, and I thank everyone who's taken the time to listen. I look forward to making at least a few more episodes in 2020. While there have been several themes in these 10 interviews, including trial and stress and work-life balance and the importance of wearing a suit, it is important to note that former Colts quarterback Jim Harbaugh has been mentioned in at least two episodes. As fate would have it, I learned last night that Alabama will face off against Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines in a New Year's Day Bowl. Maybe the ghosts of Bear Bryant and Bob Chappius will be watching. So happy holidays, happy new year, and roll tide to one and all. It's time to go off the record for the year 2019.